Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. Today as we continue the series on the life of Moses, I'm reading from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. And I don't know why my Bible's turned to Zechariah, so... Uh, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Then the people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the people what, told, told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their bodies and be ready for the third day because... On that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. The smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of the mountain and, Moses, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. After delivering Israel 
from the hand of Pharaoh, God brings Moses and Israel to the mountain called Sinai. And it says that the mountain trembled. It says that the earth shook. It says that the smoke covered the presence of God on that mountain. Why did God take Moses and Israel to this mountain and do what he did? I think that before God took Israel into the promised land, he wanted them to see one last time just how big their God was. They needed to see that he was bigger than the wilderness ahead, bigger than the giants to come, stronger than the fortified cities they were to lay siege to, greater than the armies they would face. They needed to know their God was bigger than anything they would face on the journey. They needed to be reminded one time in unmistakable terms that their God was holy and exalted. Do not touch this mountain before I tell you to. And if somebody touches it, they are to die. And don't you touch them either. Not only do you not touch the mountain, you don't touch someone that's touched the mountain. He wanted them to know he was the creator and maker of all things. He could make mountains shake. That he was a sovereign ruler over all the earth and the stars in the heavens. You see, a shallow, stunted view of God leads to a shallow, stunted view of everything God does and gives to us. If you do not see the God on Sinai, if you do not feel the awe that that should have inspired, then we have a very shallow view of sin. If God is Mr. Rogers, what's the big deal about sin? We have a shallow view of salvation. Saved from what? A shallow view of holiness. A shallow view of grace. God is our friend, but that friendship should astound us. That friendship should amaze us. We are dealing with someone whose very presence should at some level cause us to tremble too, cause our worlds to be shaken up. So often we never let our minds go to Sinai. We, like Israel, keep looking backward to Egypt, not up to the mountain on fire in front of us. What was God's agenda at that mountain? The scriptures tell us God wanted to instill in Israel, first and foremost, an ethic of obedience. That's what he says in verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he was after. In essence, what God was telling Israel don't leave this mountain until you're willing to obey everything I say today. You are to be my agents on earth. You are to be my holy nation. You are to be my kingdom of priests. You are to represent me to this planet, to demonstrate what being ruled by me looks like. You are to show the world how following me is an amazing journey that will take you places you would never go on your own. You are to show the world my heart. You are to be my vehicles for transforming this planet. And such a mission hinges on obedience. God cannot use lousy, disobedient priests. Frank Lovebach made his life an experiment in listening for the voice of God and obeying it. And he made a strong connection between obedience and the power of God that revolutionized his life. He wrote, as for me, I never lived. I was half dead. I was a rotting tree until I reached the place where I wholly, with utter honesty, resolved and then re-resolved then re that I would find God's will and I would do that will and I would win the battle 
in my thoughts. He said, after I made that decision, it was as if some deep well broke loose in my soul. Money and praise and poverty and opposition, they made no difference, for they will all be forgotten in a thousand years anyway. But he said, the spirit which comes to a mind set upon continuous surrender to that person, the spirit unleashes life. That's what God was promising Israel at Sinai. If you do what I tell you to do, if you honor the covenant, I will pour life onto you and life into the world through you. Sometimes we need to go to the mountain to wrestle with what's in our own souls. To surrender again our money, our mouths, our children, our marriages, our politics, our careers. Martin Copenhaver told us, said that there's an old Hebrew tale of a rabbi living in a Russian city a century ago. He was a rabbi in crisis. He had no sense of direction and purpose. And he went out one chilly evening just to walk around the city. He was so enshrouded by his own despair that he mistakenly wandered into a Russian military compound that was off limits to civilians. Suddenly he heard a voice. Who are you? What are you doing here? Excuse me, replied the rabbi. I said, said the soldier, who are you and what are you doing here? After a brief moment, the rabbi, in a gracious tone so as to not provoke the soldier, asked, how much do you get paid for being a soldier? And the soldier responded, what does that have to do with you? And the rabbi said, I will pay you whatever they're paying me, you, if you will follow me around every day and ask the same two questions. Who are you? And what are you doing here? I have really good news for you. The Holy Spirit will do that for free. He will follow you. And, that, and, and if you listen to him, very often his questions are, who are you? And what are you doing here? David phrased it another way. He said, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Show me who I am and what are the deepest motives of my heart. Have you ever prayed? You want, you want, a, you want a prayer God I think will find irresistible over time? It's just pray this, what David prayed. Lord, where am I misleading myself? Show me my real self. Is that self-dominated by fear or shame or anger or pride? Ask the Spirit to show you what is controlling you, but you don't see it. By the way, all of us have blind spots. Often others can see those blind spots clearly. And often we need to come to God for the truth about our heart that only God can show us. Our hearts will trick us, won't they? There is such a thing as called denial. What I've noticed through the years as a pastor is that angry people seldom see themselves as angry. They're just really honest. Fearful people seldom see themselves controlled by fear. They're just being realistic and careful. Arrogant people rarely see themselves as arrogant. They're just asserting themselves, and people need to hear what they say. Very rarely do arrogant jerks consider themselves arrogant jerks. Search me, O oh Lord. Help me to see what you see that is hurting me and others. Show me where I need healing. Show me where you want me to grow. Take me back to the mountain, Lord. 
God called Israel to worship that day at the mountain. He told them, get cleaned up. Put on your Sunday come to meeting clothes. Prepare your hearts. Because I'm going to come down that mountain and meet with you, Israel. And there I will give you revelation. Worship is placing our hearts and minds in a place where God can reveal himself to us and we respond. Worship is where we're reminded of who God is and who we are. We live in a world where people tell themselves they're God all the time. In fact, it's part of some of our common sayings. If it's going to be, it's up to me. That's idolatrous. That No. <laughs> we can do anything if we set our minds to it. No, we can't do anything we set our minds to. We have limits. You know, you can become anything you want to be in this country. No, that is not true either. And you know what? I know this country worships control because almost every car commercial talks about you're in control. You are the master of your destiny. You bought this car and now all of creation falls before you. There's even the lie of politics. Politics, by the way, you know, we, we, we believe the illusion of politicians who say they can fix the world. Their agenda will do it. Of course, if you're, you're a libertarian, they say, you know, don't follow our plan, follow our non-plan. We'll keep our hands off everything. Everybody leave everybody alone. Worship reminds us we are not in charge of the cosmos. The key to life is not a car. And people will still die, still die young, even if they're smart and moral and hardworking and exercise and eat right. People will still die. And we can't fix everything. Did you know that? We cannot fix everything. It's very important for this country to realize this before we get into the next ground war in the Middle East. We can't fix everything. Heck, we can't even fix ourselves. Whether we like it or not as a species, we need God. Worship reminds us that there is someone called God who is actually in control, who can redeem any circumstance, any pain, any catastrophe, anyone, who is bringing in a kingdom that will last forever and will cause the lion to lay down with the lamb and there will be no more war or terrorism or armies and who holds your life and my life in his hand and our death in his hands and everything in between in his hands, he is the real God. We serve a God who can make mountains shake and set them on fire. You know anybody else that can do that? Let me ask you, is there room for God to run the world in your theology? Or to put it another way, is there room for you not to be God one of the ways you'll know you're trying to be God is that you will buy into certain lies and you'll start pushing and pulling and worrying and be angry. You'll have a lack of peace in your heart. Often the lack of peace in your own heart tells you, I'm trying to play God somewhere. Worship reminds us that the God who lives in us is bigger than all the things that bother us, bigger than all our fears, bigger than what's ahead. This is why worship is crucial, individually and corporately, for every person here. 
Because without regular trips to the mountain, you know what happens when you don't go to the mountain? God gets smaller and smaller. And, his prob- and the problems we have keep getting bigger and bigger. Find your mountain. Find that place where God can reveal himself to you and you can receive what he's giving. I just read a book entitled The Spiritual Brain. It is not a devotional book. It is scientific and it is tedious, but I read it because I had the flu. And it talks about the scientific basis for humans having a soul. In that book, the author talks about how and where and under what conditions people have spiritual encounters and the nature of those encounters. And they said that the number one condition in their studies for a profound encounter with God is guess what? The number one condition where people have encounters with God is a crisis. Is a crisis. Something happens, you know what the essence of a real crisis is? Something happens where you're not in control. And you desperately seek answers beyond the normal and beyond what you can produce or anybody else. And you're open to brand new possibilities. And at that point in time, guess who often shows up? Preacher said that a friend of his once struggled in the face of a painful reality that lasted for months and months. One year, his daughter was raped and strangled to death. And this man didn't know if he could go on living. Night after night, he lost sleep. Night after night, he grieved. And then one night in total spiritual, physical, and psychological exhaustion, he lay on his bed and he cried out with every fiber of his being, God, I give up. I just give up. I can't handle this anymore. And he said, at that moment, an indescribable peace overwhelmed him. And he heard God say, I've been waiting for you to say that a long time. God is waiting for some of us to say, I give up. I can't fix this. The only one who can fix this is the Lord God Almighty. Imagine that. God often breaks through. When we come to the end of our good ideas, our energy, our illusions of control, when we come to the end of ourselves, guess who shows up and begins his work? By the way, the old saints call that surrender. The second condition where spiritual counters seem to happen the most is in silence and prayer and meditation. Have you noticed we live in a noisy world and that noise begins to saturate us after a while? Gets inside you, doesn't it? Our minds, to quote Henry Nouwen, are like banana trees filled with monkeys who jump up and down and from tree to tree. And all the monkeys want attention. Our job is to get an AK-47 and shoot the monkeys. No, actually, (laughs) I hate that that was amen. Anyway, (laughs) actually, we are invited to pray the noise in our heads, to pray our pain, to pray our worry, to pray our anxiety until we give it to God 
we are invited to embrace our monkeys until God can put some duct tape on their mouths and their little paws. Is there nothing duct tape cannot do? In silence, we ask the Spirit to lead us in our prayers. Holy Spirit, what should I pray for? What do you want me to sense or feel? What do you want to give me right here and right now? Let me ask you, when you prayed, when was the last time you prayed where you asked God to set the agenda instead of you? When was the last time you did that? And when you pray, pray until something strikes you in a special way. You know, you, you feel something going on. You feel a warmth or an energy or, you, you know, you, you go, uh, I, the Holy Spirit's saying something here. Then let the Spirit lead you to what you need and what he wants. And a key to all of this, folks, is to believe that God will guide you. Don't, you don't have to impress God. Don't try to impress God. Pray what you need to pray and then just listen. Don't try to make something happen. Don't try to manufacture an experience or an emotion. That in and of itself can become a barrier. It can become its own noise. And the Spirit's agenda is often very simple. It could be a thought that suddenly comes alive. Or a presence that brings peace. Or love that holds us. And please remember this. You are wired for this. Wired to feel God. Wired to feel the Spirit. Wired to experience spiritual realities. Silence can also come as you study the Scriptures. Like prayer, you're reading the Scriptures, you read them slowly, and you ask the Spirit to make a word or a phrase or a sentence or a story come alive that He wants you to focus on. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you what you read, what you need from what you read. And when you sense that, pray it. Personalize it. Imagine what God would, would, you know, wants you to do if you played it out in ordinary life. Are you called to some response or action? And then thank God for what he's go- doing and going to do through you. Remember, the Bible is not just written for you, but it, it is meant to be the Spirit's vehicle to speak to you directly. One Christian writer said that he had a friend of the family named Eileen. And Eileen got really upset one day because someone started talking to her young daughter about God. How dare they? And although she was disappointed with her life, trapped in her own suburban island, Eileen wanted nothing to do with God. She was an enlightened person. But that night, Eileen couldn't sleep. And at midnight, she went downstairs and picked up a Bible. She couldn't remember the last time she'd been to a church. And get this, she had never opened a Bible before without a preacher telling her to do it. But she opened it now. And she noticed it was divided into an old part and a new part. She decided to start with the new part, figuring the book probably had been updated in the last few years. So in the still of the night, she sat in her living room floor. And there she began to read the gospel of Matthew. By 3 a.m., she was in the middle of John's gospel. And she found, as she puts it, that she 
during reading this scripture, had discovered that Jesus Christ was real and alive, and she had fallen in love with him. And she said, she prayed this, I don't know what I'm doing, God, but I know you are what I want and what I need. The Spirit uniquely uses the Bible to help us encounter the living Jesus. The message of the Bible is not just that help is coming. The message of the Bible is that help has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So before you begin to read or acknowledge, please acknowledge that Jesus is present with you and ask him to touch your mind and thoughts. Be open to the possibility that God is wanting to speak to you through his word. In a world where the noise is deafening, Silence becomes more important, not less. In a world where things are spinning faster and faster, slowing down is more important, not less. In a world where evil seems huge, stopping to listen to the God who shakes the mountains becomes critical. You are not as worried about Putin if you watch God shake a mountain. Of course, there's other ways God speaks to us. Another way besides prayer and scripture and crisis is nature. They find that people often discover God in nature. Often it's praise. People, there's all kinds of ways. Here's the point. Find your mountain. Find it. Find that place where you can sense what God wants to give you. Look up. Folks, we need to be changed before we mess with the enemies of God. God's kingdom starts in our hearts, and then it moves outward. It's not the other way around. We can't change the world by simply adding our fears to theirs, our anger to their anger. Even our good motives are not enough. If we focus on our small visions of reality, our enemies will get bigger and bigger as God gets smaller and smaller. I think I used this illustration sometime in the last two years, but I like it in tough noogies. I'm going to use it again. It's from Max Lucado. And he said he took his nephew and his niece to the San Antonio Zoo. He said, which was a perfect place for a three- and a five-year-old to spend a Saturday afternoon. He said, I was a veteran kid guide. I knew the path to take. Start small and end wild. That used to be my dating philosophy. We began, he says, we began with the lowly glass-caged reptiles. Next, we oohed and awed at the parrots and pink flamingos. I mean, who isn't stunned by pink flamingos? We fed the sheep in the petting zoo and tossed crumbs to the fish in the pond. But all along, Lucado said, I kept telling Lawson and Callie, we're getting closer to the big animals. Elephants and tigers are just around the corner. Finally, we reached, he said, the Africa section. For full effect, I told them to enter with their heads down and their eyes on the sidewalk. Don't look until I tell you. I walked them right up to the elephant fence. Just on the other side were these mammoth creatures. And just when I was about to tell them to lift their eyes, Lawson made a discovery. Look, he said, a doodle bug. 
Where? Callie asked. Here. He squatted down and placed the pellet-sized insect in the palm of his hand and began to roll it around. Let me see it, Callie said. I couldn't get them to take their eyes off the doodlebug. Hey, guys, this is the jungle section. Elephants are here. No response. Don't you want to see the wild animals? No, they had a doodlebug. There we stood. Elephants to our left, lions to our right, only a stone's throw from hippos and leopards. And what were they doing? They were playing with a doodlebug. Lucado says, don't we all? Myriads of mighty angels encircle us. The presence of our maker engulfs us. Witness of thousands of galaxies and constellations call to us. The flowing tide of God's history carries us. The crowning of Christ as king of the universe awaits us. But we can't get our eyes off the doodlebug. Paychecks. And you know what doodlebug? They're paychecks and gadgets and vacations and weekends. And all the stuff we find so fascinating. Open your eyes. Lift up your gaze. Do not limit your world to the doodlebugs of life. And I'm not complaining about doodlebugs. God made doodlebugs. They're not sinful. But you're not supposed to build your life around them. We have too many doodlebug Christians, don't you agree? God is here. Yeah, but did you notice the legs on that doodlebug? God is moving. Yeah, but that doodlebug is the latest model. Maybe we can get it in red. God is speaking. Do you hear him? No. But this doodlebug has the latest in technology. God's word to us is lift up your gaze to something bigger. And here's the amazing part of it. That something bigger is right in front of you. Right inside you if you believe Jesus. In the end, everything comes down to you and God at the mountain. Circumstances, you know, they're constantly in flux. The only constant is change itself. Problems are already there, and if they're not there, they're coming. And the world, well, the world's always been crazy, and it's going to get crazier. If you don't go to the mountain, you will forget God. You'll forget who you serve. You'll turn into Israel in the wilderness, grumbling and mumbling and negative and scared and fearful and ungrateful and, enjoy and joyless. That's what happens when you forget what you saw at the mountain. And I realize today, I am, what I'm telling you is not new. It is not original. It's as old as prayer itself. Old as the scriptures themselves. What I'm telling you, I wish, I wish I could come up with some clever slogan or, you know, some program on the iPad. You know, if you push these three buttons, you can talk to Jesus. All I'm telling you is, even though it's not new and original, it is absolutely necessary. What does this Bible, what does the hymn say? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. There is no such thing as instant maturity. There is no such thing as instant deep spirituality. 
In order to do what I'm talking about, you have to do the old-fashioned thing. You have to go to the mountain. And that takes discipline. Enough discipline to make time for it. Whether it's 30 minutes a day or two hours each week on a weekend or, or, or in the morning or in the evening, wherever your mountain is, whatever your pathway is. And it takes discipline to silence the monkeys. And it takes discipline to read the scripture. And it takes some discipline to praise God or to write a journal. It does take some discipline. But again, all you're doing is preparing yourself to receive what God wants to give you. God is the one who will provide the steak and the chocolate pie and the surf and turf. God will even provide asparagus for some of you warped people. It's, there is, God provides the meal. You have to have enough discipline to sit down at the table and pick up a fork. And many of us don't have that anymore. But folks, there is no substitute for what I'm talking about. There is no substitute for God's love poured into your heart. There's no substitute for God's peace saturating your life. There is no substitute for joy that becomes our strength. What I'm talking about is not new. It is not original. But it simply must be done. Or else we wander the wilderness for years and years and play with doodlebugs. And think that is a meaningful life. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to ask the Spirit to help you find your mountain. It just has to be done. If the power of God is to flow and the peace of God is to reign, it has to be done. If God is going to be bigger than the world to us, it has to be done. I want you to ask God what he wants you to do in this area. I want you to ask him, where is your mountain? Lead us, Holy Spirit. Show us where we can go to receive what you have on a regular basis. Show us our mountains. Forgive us, Lord. Some of us have been in the wilderness a long time and gotten quite grumpy. 
or cynical or just dead. Help us, Lord, to rediscover how real you can be. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like our worship team to come forward, our intercessors to come forward. But before we, they start playing and stuff, this is Amy's last Sunday with us before she goes back to Asia. And so we're going to pray for her before we wrap up this service. So, Amy, will you come?